Good morning. My name is Willie. I'm one of the pastors here at Willingdon and excited to continue our series, Ethics in Room 21C, Ethics in the 21st Century, uh, with you this morning. Uh, This morning, our message is entitled, The High Price of Impatience. I don't know if you've ever paid the price literally for impatience. Uh, I had that experience once and probably more times than I'd like to admit. Uh, but one time in particular that comes to mind is I was in a, in a hurry. I was being impatient. I had to take my son and one of his friends to volleyball practice uh, across the city in Calgary. And, uh, and so I'm like, okay, guys, let's go. We got to hurry up. And at that time, I was driving uh, an old SUV, an old Land Cruiser. Uh, right-hand drive. So I jumped in from the right side of the vehicle on our double driveway. I didn't look what was on the left side of the vehicle, which is where you normally get in. So I jumped in the cars and the vehicle, as did the other two, put it into reverse, let the clutch out, and promptly backed into my son's van. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure there was like steam, you know, for the cartoons. There would have been steam coming out of my ears. And my son and his friend, first of all, they're shocked, and then they're doing what teenage boys do, is trying not to laugh at me. (laughs) But of course they did, which is what I would have done when I was their age, because it was funny. Now, the only good part was my son's van I had bought for $1. (laughs) So it wasn't getting fixed. It It was duct tape. You know, you can get colored duct tape, the van's red, it got red duct tape. That's how I fixed that. Of course, with my SUV, it was a little, a little more difficult to fix it, uh, or a little more, it would cost a little more money. But often, and there's a price we pay for impatience. Now, I don't know what, how you deal with impatience. Impatience in traffic is a typical one, and if you drive at all, you know, in the greater Vancouver area, uh, you know, if, if you're driving within a day or two, you've had an impatient experience. But in relationships, it can often, often be more costly. I don't know how your impatience works with your spouse or with your kids. Or if you're dealing with other people, if you're waiting online uh, with your cell phone company because you have to fix a problem with your cell phone, which means you've probably been waiting for hours, and how you deal with the person once they finally get there. Or maybe more difficult situations, how you deal with waiting and your impatience when you're waiting to hear about the response to a job interview and you're wondering what's going to happen. Or, as we did this last week, you're waiting for a medical report. So on Friday, we were waiting for the results of a CT scan that my father-in-law had on Monday. And we're wondering, how serious is this? And fortunately, it was good news. It wasn't as serious as as we, we had thought it might be. What do you do when you wait? What do you do in your impatience? How do you respond to waiting on God when he's not answering as quickly or directly as you would like? How do you respond to that? What are the emotions that you go through in your impatience? Like, is it fear? Is it anger? Is it worry? Is it like, what is it that wells up inside of you? The other thing I find often when we're waiting is we can create a storyline in our head. So if it's something simple like impatience and driving and someone does something that causes our impatience to go up, we assume that they're a jerk and they're selfish. Right? We don't assume, well, they must have a bad day and they're in a hurry for a really good reason. That's generally not what we're thinking. Right? There's always a storyline that wells up. When we're waiting and we're impatient with other people, we assume usually the worst about them. 
or the worst about that company that we're dealing with, or the worst about that doctor that's not giving us the information that we want. Or we think the worst of God. We think he's ignoring us. We think he doesn't care about us. We create storylines, and we have struggle. And that's what the text is about that we're walking into today. Exodus chapter 32. Uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. In your pew Bible, it's page 72. But before we get into that story, I want to give you a bit more backstory. We've been in Exodus for a while this summer, but what's led us up to this point is actually uh, in Exodus chapter 19, we have God giving to Moses on Mount Sinai uh, the Ten Commandments and some covenantal rules for the people to walk in relationship. And for the next few chapters, uh, Moses is explaining this to the people. And it kind of culminates in Exodus chapter 24, uh, verse 3, where the people who are all together, and this is probably, you know, over a million people, they're all together, and they hear this, and they respond in unison. In verse 3, it says, the people said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So it's like all of you here today, you heard a word from the Lord, and you got up, and in unison, you said, we're in. We're all in. We're going to do everything that God has commanded us to do. We're committed. And we will follow through on this. And then we're told that shortly thereafter, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai again. And now he's receiving the Ten Commandments carved in stone. He's receiving instructions for the tabernacle and what that should look like. He's receiving instructions on how to anoint Aaron as the high priest to lead people in worship. We're told he's gone for a prolonged period of time, which is written up as 40 days and 40 nights. But prior to him coming back from those 40 days and 40 nights, the people become impatient. The people create a storyline in their head. They deal with whatever those emotions are that their impatience has created in them. And we pick up that story in Exodus chapter 32, the first six verses. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So while God is making plans and communicating plans to Aaron about how to increase his manifest presence among the people, how to increase their worship of God, their experience of God, their spiritual leadership through the anointing of Aaron as high priest. While that is all happening, the people are growing impatient. 
their anxiety, their desires, their, their need for control, whatever it might be inside of them that wells up in their impatience, in their waiting, causes them to go to Aaron and say, okay, Aaron, get up. We want an idol. We're tired of waiting for Moses. We're not waiting for God. We want our own God. Now think about this. These are people who weeks prior had been led supernaturally by God out of captivity. And within weeks, they're, they're saying, hey, we have more faith in a God of our own making by our own hands than we have faith in the God who did that. We have more faith in Aaron who can make a man-made God than we do in Moses who is an agent of the supernatural God. That's what happens in weeks. And the people now rise up in their impatience, in their struggle, because they couldn't wait for God to give them a place of worship. They couldn't wait for God to anoint them in a high priest. Now, my default, I read this text, and I've read this text many times, and I'd like to think I would behave better than they do. Like, I want to think, you know, are you foolish? What is wrong with you people? Don't you realize what God has just done? Don't you understand? Couldn't you be a little more patient and trust him a little longer? But they want to take matters into their own hands. Now, before you get too self-righteous or I get too self-righteous, I want to ask you, what do you do when God is silent? What do you do when God's not answering the way you hope that he would? How do you respond? What is your default thought or behavior? What is the emotion that happens? See, what happens often, I think, for all of us, and this happens to them, is that they want to go back to things that are familiar to them. They want to go back to things they are comfortable with. I think often when we are impatient, we grasp for things that are comfortable, that make us feel peaceful, that, that, that we think will lessen our anxiety in the situation. That is the human condition. And that's what these people do. You see, they did not make a golden calf because someone had the idea and they'd never seen it before. They made a golden calf because that was exactly the cultural thing they were comfortable with. They had seen many golden calves. They had seen worship to golden calves many times in the land of Egypt. That is where they had been raised. That's where they had grown up. That's what they were, had observed many times around them because that's what the Egyptians would do. So it seems that you could take the people out of Egypt, but you couldn't take Egypt out of the people. And they reverted back to that which was comfortable to them. So let me ask you, what are your Egypt kind of defaults? When you are waiting on God, when you are uncomfortable, when you are anxious, when you're building another storyline in your head, when you're thinking God doesn't care, God's not listening, God's not answering, what's the Egypt you go back to? What's the comfortable thing that you go back to? Now, if you think back to the, our cultural context, that's what will influence us. So for me, in the culture I grew up in, and, and you know, I come from a German family, so you, I, my world is, okay, let's be logical, let's be proper, let's do the right thing, let's do it in the right order, let's do it in the right way, following the right schedule. 
Now, if you come from a superstitious culture, you want to do all the things that will make you feel like superstition is on your side. You know, you got to have the right address. Your house has got to be on the right street. You have to live on the right floor of the apartment building, whatever it might be. If you come from a shame-based culture, you're going to make sure that your relationships are the kind where you get the blessing from the people that you want the blessing from so that you are comfortable and feel good about your life. If you come from a spiritist-based culture where it's all about spiritual warfare, you want to make sure that you appease the right gods and don't offend the wrong ones. Every culture has its thing. All of us have the thing we gravitate back to. We all have our Egypt that we go back to. And we'd like to think, well, we're in the West. We're not superstitious, but actually Canadians are very superstitious. How do I know? If you know any Canadian hockey players or hockey fans. <laughs> right? If you ever listen to an interview of a Canadian hockey player, they will talk about, especially if they've won a couple of games in a row, especially during playoffs. You ask them, well, so what's your routine? Oh, I get up at this time. I show up the rink at this time. We always sit in the same order in our dressing room. We always get dressed exactly the same way. You know, the equipment goes on. First my left leg, then my right leg. Always in this order. And every one of them will do that. Every single one of them. And they get on the ice in the same order. They leave the ice in the same order. They tape their stick in exactly the same way. Their equipment could be falling apart, but if they won the last game, they're still going to wear it even though they can afford new stuff. One of my friends was a chaplain for a hockey team, uh, a junior hockey team. And the coach had no belief in God whatsoever, but the chaplain had prayed and they won that game, so the coach said, you have to pray for the next game. <laughs> true story. And then, you know how it's true with the fans? This is what fans do in Canadian hockey. What they do is they turn on the, their favorite team on the, on the TV, and as soon as they turn on, the other team scores, and they go, oh, I'm bad luck, I can't watch the game, and they turn it off. My team will lose if I keep watching. <laughs> do you think they know you're watching? Right? We all have our thing. We all have our thing. We all have our Egypt that we're tempted to revert to when we struggle. And I said, I know it's true because I know I do it. I have my defaults that I go to. I know it's true because I know you do it because I've talked to so many of you. I see the prayer requests that you send in. And often I see how we sit there and we try and go, okay, God, I'm going to do this so you do this. We even do it with things that actually we know are against God's will. And that's often with relationships. So we'll say, okay, I'm dating this this person who does not believe in God, which we know that God says, that's not good for you, don't do that. And we have people say, I want God's blessing on this relationship. And we go, wait a minute, you're actually not following what God wants for you. So you want God to follow your agenda, not his agenda, because you don't trust him for his. And we can do that in work, we can do that with our kids, we can do that all over the place. We all do it. We are all, we are all tempted to do it. We can leave Egypt, but Egypt, Egypt fights to live in us when we become impatient and we become anxious. And the people of Israel wanted something familiar, so they said to Aaron, make us an idol. So Aaron said to them, take off the gold. Take off the gold and give me the gold. Do you know where the gold came from? If you remember the story, if you've read the story, the gold came from the Egyptians. Because God said, the Egyptians are going to be so glad that you're leaving finally that they are going to give you gifts of gold and of jewelry. So the gifts that God said that the Egyptians would give the people 
was the gold that now was going to be used to make this idol. The purpose of those gifts would have been used to build God's tabernacle, to, play, to create this place of worship for God's manifest presence to be among the people. And instead, they took divine gifts and used them to build an idol for their purposes. Friends, every gift we have, everything we have, our intellect, our talent, our ability to make money, all the things that we have, the material possessions that we have, all of them are a gift of God for his glory and for his purposes. And we do not, and when we do not use them in that way, we are being idolatrous in our use of those things that he has given us. It does not mean that we don't get to enjoy them, but God said those people would have much greater enjoyment if they use the gold given to them to build a place for his manifest presence than to create an idol that is dead and can do nothing. So the people used something that was meant for divine purposes. See, and then Aaron says, okay, you know, at the end of verse 6 there, he says, tomorrow, he has the idol. Tomorrow we're going to have a great celebration for God, for the Lord. I don't know if Aaron looked at this and suddenly went and saw the idol and went, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done? And he tries to redirect this idol and say, tomorrow we're going to worship the Lord through this idol. We cannot use the Lord to validate our idolatry. We cannot use the Lord to validate our idolatry. We don't do what we want and get our purposes in our way and then say, oh God, you know, I'll do this for you now. The only one we're kidding is ourselves in that case. See, when the people became impatient, they tried to use God. Aaron tried to use God to validate their idolatry. They, took, they created this storyline in their own heads, but it just revealed their idols. And when we, when we become impatient with God, our true idols will always be revealed. Whether it's a thing, a job, a person, whatever it is, when we become impatient with God, our true idols will be revealed. So what happens now? How does God respond to this? Verse 7 tells us, So the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So God's plans for this tabernacle and for the anointing of Aaron are interrupted. The scriptures tell us that the noise of their party reached the mountain. And God interrupts his conversation with Moses and notice he says, he does, or he does not say, go down to my people who are now who have corrupted themselves. He says to Moses, go down to your people. He says, Moses, you're the spiritual leader. You go down to your people who have corrupted themselves through their, this idolatry, through their willful disobedience. Because remember, they said, God, we're all in. Exodus 24, 3. We're all in. We'll follow everything. Friends, this text is written to what we would say today are Christ followers. Right? They're God followers. This text isn't written to the culture. It's written to people who said, we're all in. That's who it's written to. Who are being willfully disobedient and will now suffer the consequences. What are the consequences? Verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. 
God had made it clear that the punishment for sin is death. And so when he's saying that I may consume them, he's not speaking figuratively, he's speaking literally. And he says this interesting thing here at the end of verse 10. He says, in order that I may make a great nation out of Moses. He's saying, let's start over. Let's start over. These people have been disobedient. A few weeks ago, they declared their allegiance. Now they have rejected me completely. They have broken the covenant that was made between it. And he said, they, will, they are no longer the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have broken that. And he says to Moses, let's start over. Some authors will say, well, this shows that God is a God who changes his mind. But I think there's actually more going on here. There's something more subtle happening here. Because first of all, God distances himself from the people. Because he says, Moses, these are your people. He doesn't say they're my people. It's the first thing that he does. And then after that, he says, Moses, leave me alone so that I can actually take this out on these people. Which is interesting, because if God wanted to take out his wrath on the people, and if God wanted to start a new nation with Moses, he could just say to Moses, well, just stay here, let's take care of this, and he can do it with a snap of his fingers. But he actually creates time. And then he says to Moses, and I think this was a test. I mean, the text doesn't tell us this. But he says, Moses, let's make a great nation out of you. And we're not giving, given any more dialogue in this situation. And I wish we were. I don't know if Moses grappled with this temptation of saying, oh, we could start over. History will not say the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They'll say the people of Moses. My name will be on this for all of history. I don't know if he struggled or was tempted. We're not told anything. But it's a radical idea that God has here. And he creates this space. He says, Moses, get out of my presence because of these people, because I'm angry. But we're also told in the book of 1 Samuel that God doesn't change his mind. And so what happens here? God could have destroyed the people very quickly. He told Moses to leave him alone. I believe this was a test for Moses. I think Moses has the place to decide what he will do as a spiritual leader. And I love how Moses responds in verse 11. Verse, right after God said, leave so I can consume them. I'll make a great nation out of you. And immediately it says, but Moses implored the Lord. He begged. He petitioned. He pleaded. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? with great power and with a mighty hand. Moses does not hesitate to intercede for the people, to mediate for the people. He is is like a great servant leader who does not consider the benefit or the, the danger to himself. He steps in between God and the people as a true leader would, as a true servant leader would. There's no dialogue about being tempted with having a nation built after himself. He steps into leadership in a wonderful way. The other thing that Moses does immediately is that he does not try and rationalize the sin of the people. Sometimes when we stick up for someone, we say, well, you know, what they did wasn't that bad. You didn't really understand their motives. You, you You misinterpreted or they didn't understand what they were supposed to do. We try to find some way to minimize the offense. Moses does not do that. Like not even a bit. There is no justification for the behavior of the people. 
He doesn't say, well, God, you know, 40 days is awfully long time. He doesn't say, well, they didn't quite understand what they were committing to back in Exodus 24, verse 3. There's none of that. No excuses. What does Moses do? Moses appealed to God on the basis of who God is. He appealed to God on the basis of God's love and God's character. He appealed to God on his glory, his mercy, his faithfulness, on what he had done with the people and bringing them out of the land, on God's reputation for all the nations all around them. He appealed to God based on who God is, not on who the people are. It had nothing to do with the people. It had everything to do with God. Moses simply knew what they had done was terrible. What they had done deserved death. But Moses interceded on their behalf. And I think this is a beautiful picture, actually, of Jesus interceding on our behalf. Jesus steps in between us and God. He is the great mediator between us and God. But there's a big difference between Jesus and Moses. Because Moses was a sinful human being. So Moses could not pay the price for the people. And there were still consequences that would come, which we will refer to in a moment. He could intercede, he could mediate, but he could not take on the sin of the people. Jesus takes on our full sin because the consequences of sin is death. That is the reality. So Moses appeals to God. And God relents. Verse 14 says, The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Because of the interceding of Moses. Just like Jesus intercedes for us. And steps in our place. And takes the punishment that we deserve. But because Jesus is sinless and perfect. We receive his righteousness. His forgiveness fully. You see when we pursue personal idols, we will need help to restore our relationship with God. When we pursue our personal idols, we will need help to restore our personal relationship with God. In this case, even after God extends mercy to the people, there still has to be a godly way to walk through the consequences of the people's sin. Otherwise, restoration will not be fully complete. You see, we still have to deal with the reality of what we do, how our idolatry, and even though we see full forgiveness through Jesus, often for our actions, there are still human consequences. I still had to pay to have my SUV repaired when I backed it into that vehicle. That still happened. And in this case, there were still consequences. Verse 19, as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. I think in my kids' words, Moses lost it. Like he just completely lost it. Right? He comes down and he takes this thing. You would think these tablets would be incredibly precious to him, made by the hand of God. He's so angry at the scene that he comes upon that he takes them and smashes them to pieces. And then he goes and makes his way through this partying crowd, gets this idol, and I mean, I'm not sure how big it was, but gold's pretty heavy. But he gets this thing and finds the hottest fire he can find to melt it down and then turn it into dust. 
put it in the water supply so the people can drink and taste their idolatry. I think that's the definition of losing it. But here's what Moses knew. Idols need to be purged. Idols need to be eradicated. He didn't want to keep the idol around as a reminder of the sin of the people because he knew they would go back to it. Idols need to be purged from our presence. You can't simply put them in a closet. And friends, anything that takes the affection that should be God's, anything that takes that place in our lives that should only be God's is an idol. Whatever that might be. And we know as soon as we rationalize our affection for something, we're making an excuse for an idol. That's actually what's happening. I like uh, Nancy Artberg puts it this way. Uh, She's a, a writer and a pastor in California. And she says, and some of us, if we're absolutely truthful, have a herd of golden calves. But we are Christians. And everyone knows that Christians aren't supposed to have golden calves. So we hide them paint them a different color, put them in the garage. And then when someone dares to point out the obvious, we are quick to say, oh, that, that's not a cow. That's a dog. It's my pet. You see, I'm a Christian and Christians don't have idols. She's saying we rationalize. We find ways of trying to make excuses for our idols. And friends, but friends, this is serious business. You know how I know it's serious? Moses lost it, and God never rebuked him for his anger. There's other places in the Bible where Moses is rebuked. God says, no, you, you're, you actually were angry in the wrong way. Here God is saying it's righteous anger because God never rebukes him. God never rebukes him for breaking the, the tablets. God never rebukes him for ground, grounding down the calf and making people drink water filled with its powder. So I know God is saying, no, Moses, your anger is justified. Your anger was appropriate in this situation. If there's anything fighting for your attention to push God out of your heart, it's an idol. What wants your attention in that way? What do you pursue in that way? You know, I've seen technology be an idol. I've seen video games be an idol. I've seen addictions, pornography, alcohol, whatever it might be, be an idol. I've seen children be an idol for parents. I've seen possessions or status or position at work. Anything can be an idol. And the same way that the calf was ground into dust and pulverized, we need to take that same attitude towards anything that wants to be an idol in our lives. Because idolatry is dangerous. If you have trouble viewing, you say, well, websites are a problem. Well, get rid of your phone, get rid of your iPad, get rid of your computer. Say, well, I need that. Well, what do you need more? Your idolatry or something breaking up and taking the place of God and separating you from him? If a relationship is an idol, stop it. If your job is an idol, get a different one. If your home is an idol, sell it. Whatever it might be, this is too important, this is too serious. If you can't stay off social media, get rid of it. Friends, these things are far too important in blocking our relationship with God. If your service of Christ is an idol, stop it. 
because that can be an idol. If you actually have idols because of other religions in your background, get rid of them. Do the same thing Moses did with his. Do not play games with this, friends. Do not play games. Do not rationalize. When we minimize our idolatry, we are pushing away God's leading, God's peace, and God's work in our lives. When we minimize our idolatry, we are pushing away God's leading, God's peace, and God's work in our lives. That is the reality. Moses knew this was serious, so Moses comes down from the mountain, finally gets to talk to Aaron in verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Moses actually is giving Aaron the benefit of the doubt. Like, what did they do? Did they threaten you? Like, what did they do to you? And and Aaron's answer actually makes it worse. And if you look at the next verse, Aaron says says to Moses, "Uh, you know the people, that they are set on evil. So Aaron says, it's not my fault. He's rationalizing. It's not my fault. It's their fault. What could I do? And then he makes it even verse, worse in verse 24 when, when uh, he says, so I, I uh, told him to take the gold off. They gave it to me. And he says, and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> like by that point, I think God would have been laughing. It's like, you've got to be kidding me, Aaron. That's the best you can come out with? I threw something in the fire. Makes you want to go home and take stuff and throw it in the fire and see what happens. Except we know what's happened. It's just going to burn up. Right? Aaron made the mold. And that's what we do when we rationalize. We leave out details. Right? Aaron left out all these details. Who's he fooling? Is he fooling Moses? No. Is he fooling God? No. Verse 35 says, actually says, the calf that Aaron made. That's what God says in verse 35. He's not fooling anybody but himself. See, that's what happens. We fool, when we rationalize our idolatry, we confirm we have one, and the only one we're fooling is ourselves. And even though God's anger relented and extended his mercy to hundreds of thousands of people, there was still a price to be paid. So Moses then has to call on the Levites, who is, who is the priestly class, and it says that they struck down, they killed 3,000 people that day. That was the price that was paid, and there was a plague, but the Bible doesn't tell us what the impact of the plague was. And so even though God's mercy saved hundreds of thousands of people, there was still a price to be paid for sin. There's always a price to be paid for sin. And even though Jesus extends his grace to us, there is a human price we pay when we sin because we break relationships, we make bad decisions. So we still have human consequences because of those things. But the beauty at the end of chapter 32 of Exodus is that the people are restored in a covenant relationship with God because of Moses' mediation on their behalf. And we know from the book of Romans, which tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's the beauty of what Jesus does in his intercession for us. Friends, when we are in the midst of sin, especially if we're in a group of people who are thinking the same way we are. It is so easy to minimize our sin. It's so easy to minimize our idolatry because we've gone back to Egypt and we're thinking like our culture has thought rather than how God teaches us to think. And we start to feel like it's normal and it's not. 
You need to attack the idolatry in your lives. And you know what it is because the Holy Spirit will point it out to you. You know when something is too precious to you, too important to you, because you're willing to push God aside for that thing, that experience, that relationship, whatever it might be. You know you feel sheepish when you talk about it. And you rationalize it. And God says, no, deal with it. Pulverize it. Get rid of it. It's because it's for your own good. Aaron minimized his sin. He left out crucial details. He made excuses for his behavior. And the people paid for it because he didn't step up. He wasn't the servant leader that Moses was. But God's grace was extended to him. And God's grace is extended to us. So fully and so completely. As we're promised in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians says, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We stand before God without shame, without guilt. Jesus takes on that punishment on our behalf and we live free. So friend, the best and only healthy response to our, our idolatry is to ask for God's forgiveness and to receive his cleansing in our lives. And it is so simple. It is so simple. How do we simply do it? We admit it, we own it, we confess it. See, God never made this a hard thing for us. He never made it a hard thing for us. We admit our sin. God, I'm a sinner. God, I have idols. God, I want to own my behavior. And I confess it to you. Please forgive me for that. Lord, reorient my thoughts. I want to trust in you for everything. And I trust in you and you name the thing that has actually been in the way between you and God. I trust you for this relationship. I trust you for a spouse. I trust you for my job. I trust you for my children. I trust you to take care of me. I trust you for my finances. Admit it, own it, confess it. God says, I am here. My son is already the mediator. You are already forgiven in him. Walk in freedom. Let's stand for closing prayer. Friends, if that's where you're at today, as I pray for you, simply give that thing that God is, is convicting you about to him. Give it to him. If you need prayer afterwards, we have pastors who will be happy to pray with you or go to our prayer center. It is God's intent is always for us to live in freedom. And idols block that relationship. They actually imprison us. And our rationalization imprisons us. And it may be a frightful step for you. But God is greater than that idol that you are hanging on to. Father, I thank you for your goodness. And even in this difficult story in Ezekiel 32, where we learn the high price of impatience as we create a storyline in our head and then justify behaviors as the people did. And because of Jesus who stands between us and you, Father, who takes care of our sin, if we simply bring it to you. So, Father, I know my tendency to want to take control, my tendency to want to do things in logical fashion that makes sense to me. And Father, so often I do that rather than trusting you, and I ask your forgiveness for that. Father, I know your grace extends to every person in, in the hearing of this message. 
And so, Father, for the people who are struggling right now, I pray that they will give those things to you. And, Father, I know in return you give your forgiveness and you want to give the peace of your spirit. And, Father, each day as we get tempted to go back to Egypt, Father, to start each day saying, God, my life is in your hands. I follow you. I trust you in whatever area that we are concerned with. And, Father, I pray for the testimonies that we will hear in the weeks and months to come of your goodness and your grace as we wait on you for leading and for direction. We trust you for the things we hold dearest in this world because you are a good God, you are a trustworthy God, and you have our best in mind because you created us and you called us your own. Father, for those who don't know you today, I pray that they would give their hearts to you, their lives to you, simply saying, Jesus, come and forgive me of my sin. Come and fill me with your spirit and make me your child. I give my life to you. So, Father, go with us from this place as we deal with this issue every day. And may we bring glory to you and live in the benefits of your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.